At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. Imagine with me for a moment that you have uh, two friends. One of your friends one day is at work and gets invited into his boss's office. The boss lets your friend know that the company's really been struggling lately, and unfortunately, they're no longer going to be able to keep him employed. They have to do some significant downsizing. Worse than that, the company's actually so financially strapped that they can't offer him any sort of severance. He's just done. No more income whatsoever. They respond quickly, begin to try to look for work, but it's tough for them to find something in the field that they work in. They're struggling for a while. Eventually, all they can do is to try to take a low-paying minimum wage job to kind of make ends meet in the meantime, but the job search continues and continues. Because of this, their income has been significantly cut, and eventually they have to start making changes to their lifestyle. They sell their house, move into a lower-income apartment, downsize their car, sell off some of their possessions just to try to make ends meet. The struggle goes on for quite a while. One day, your friend calls you up and he's like, man, I'm just really struggling with all of this. Can, can we just meet and, and kind of, I just need to process through some things. So you meet up, maybe at a coffee shop somewhere, whatever works, and you sit down and he kind of walks you through a little bit of just what he's been dealing with. And at one point, he just stops and asks, what do you think God is at in the midst of all of this? I don't even know what to think right now. Like, it's just been so hard. Like, does God hate me? Like, what, what would you say to that friend in that moment who might be struggling? Now imagine you have another friend. They also get called into their boss's office. But this time, they're not told that their job, they're losing their job. They're actually told that they're getting a significant promotion, that they've decided to be moved up in the company, and actually, they're going to be the VP of the department that they oversee. And that part of this move in the company is actually a significant increase in their pay. They're almost going to double their income. And so pretty soon, because as their income increases, they begin to make changes like is normal in our society aligned with their new income. They upgrade their house get nicer cars, change their style, kind of go through the whole rigmarole, and you notice this change in your friend over a few months. But one day, they call you up, and again, they ask you to meet up because they're just struggling with some things, and you sit down, and your friend confesses to you that he's struggling to think about his newfound wealth in light of his faith. He says, I found all this prosperity, I found all this ability, and but what, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know how to process this all in regards to what God wants to me, wants me to do. What, what do you think about all of these things? How might you respond to that friend? So imagine this scenario, these two friends, right? Is your advice different? Is it the same? What do you draw your attention to? What's your encouragement? How do you help them navigate those challenges in regards to their financial situation in their faith? 
I bring up those scenarios, I know they're imaginary, but at least to force us a little bit as we begin to wrestle with the question of how does our faith relate to both seasons of poverty and seasons of prosperity. Jesus reminds us that oftentimes our financial life is connected in ways to our understanding of our spiritual life. It was Jesus who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those things are not disconnected, and many people struggle to integrate the various seasons of life, whether they find themselves in seasons of want or whether they find themselves in seasons of plenty. And the question oftentimes we wrestle with is, is there a connection? How how am I actually supposed to think about that? How does a mature faith in God live in regards to various financial situations? Maybe seasons of poverty or maybe seasons of prosperity. How are we actually to think about those sorts of things? The Apostle James writes a letter to the first church that's going through some significant challenges. They've been scattered from their home due to religious and political persecution. They find themselves in the underbelly of society and facing some significant challenges, one of those being economic challenges as well. And James, who loves them, who's pastored them for a long time, writes a letter to these scattered believers to encourage them in the midst of the challenges they are facing. One of the challenges that they're facing as a community is how they deal with both the poverty they are experiencing and also the prosperity that comes up as well. James's heart is that he wants them to have a mature and complete faith. We see that right from the beginning, that James wants them to have a whole or integrated faith in how they live amongst the challenges of life. And he knows one of those for his community is finances. And so, in the opening of his letter, he begins to deal with that issue. And what James wants them to understand, and what I want to unpack for you a little bit today from the book of James, is simply this, that mature faith puts possessions in their proper place. That regardless of whether we find ourselves in seasons of plenty or seasons of want, whether our income is way more than we need or way less, That a mature, grounded faith, a faith that's integrated in the truth and reality of Jesus, will respond by putting possessions in their proper place. So how does a mature faith do that, right? How do we approach both seasons of one and plenty when it comes to how we're called to live in light of the truth of Jesus? I think there's three things that James wants us to understand about how a mature faith can put possessions in their proper place. We see the first one come in verse 9. So remember the flow of text that James has built. He begins his letter by opening and encouraging his audience to count it all joy when they face trials of many kinds, and he encourages them in the trials that they're facing. Last week we looked at James then moves in verse 5 to the reality of wisdom, that part of the way that we need to live in light of the challenges we face is to seek God's wisdom. And then now, in verse 9, he turns to the issue of financial prosperity or poverty. And he begins this way. He says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. James looks first at those who are in the lowest position financially. And he encourages them to boast in their exaltation. The first thing I think James helps us in seeing how mature faith puts possessions in their proper place is he reminds us that in Christ... Poverty does not define us. 
Poverty does not define us. This phrase that James uses of the lowly brother, that idea of lowly is the people who find themselves at the bottom of the social and economic statuses of their world. And oftentimes what we see in scripture that those who find themselves in that place, that it brings with them an accompanying poverty of spirit or a certain humility. One commentator on the idea of the lowly says it's meant to depict a person who is of little significance in the world evaluation, even one who is oppressed by the world. Certainly this is James's audience by and large. But James doesn't simply describe them as lowly. He says the lowly brother. An inclusive term also could be brother and sister. Meaning James is not just addressing the poor in general, but specifically addressing the poor Christians that exist within the community of faith. And James has an encouragement for them. He says, if you find yourself in that position, what you should do is you should actually boast or brag or speak up about your exaltation. Now that seems like an odd idea. If you find yourself underneath the boot of the world, my response is to boast in being exalted. It sure doesn't feel like I'm very exalted. What does James mean by encouraging exaltation? Well, remember, when the scripture deals with reality. It does not just deal with reality in the limited scope of our time and place here on earth. No, God's timing is much broader. God has a larger eternal perspective on our lives, and our lives are ultimately meant to carry on into God's new creation. And what James encourages is that if you find yourself in a low position, the reason you can brag in your exaltation is because both God is going to work in your present situation to bring spiritual blessing, but also there's going to come a time where God will bring you into his glorious kingdom and he will exalt you. New Testament comment, or, uh, uh, scholar Douglas Moose says this, exaltation here includes the believer's present enjoyment of his exalted spiritual state as well as his hope of participation in the glorious eternal kingdom inaugurated by Christ. For James, the reason you can boast if you are in a place of poverty is that even in that place, you can experience incredible spiritual blessing, but you will also experience even more blessing in the age to come. This is the radical nature of the gospel, that God, by Jesus Christ, can work in our lives in such a way that we begin to experience spiritual blessing now in anticipation of God's new creation, where we will experience his reality fully. And so James says, if you're in the lowly place, look to that reality, not just the circumstances of your poverty. That's not what defines you. God's kingdom does. In fact, James will go on to say in chapter 2, and we'll unpack this more next week, but he reminds them in chapter 2, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? It's James's reminder that God often in places of poverty where we do not have the material things that we need, that oftentimes we find ourselves in a greater place of dependence on the Lord and God actually works deep spiritual blessings in those places when we are dependent upon him. And so James says, if you find yourself in that place, you can boast 
that God is actually exalting and providing and giving you what you need. You know, it's oftentimes in my own experience where I've engaged some of the poorest Christians in the world that I have found the truth of what James proclaims here to be true. I mean, by God's grace, I've been able to be with Christians in some of the worst places. I've been with Christians in the garbage city of Cairo where many Christians live because they've been ostracized from their society and they literally live in a garbage dump. I've been in the slums of India and talked with people who live on absolute abject poverty just trying to feed their families. And what I'm amazed about in all those times and experiences that I've been and gone to, that the people, especially Christians, who you would think would be the most destitute in those places are often the people who have the most joy. It's often when I've been among them that I've been the most challenged in my faith Because they continue to proclaim Christ is enough for us. He satisfies even though I don't have all the things that we think they should have. There's such a deep-rooted faith and dependence on Christ that time and again, when I've been in those places, I've been challenged. Why? Because when you are in a place where Jesus is all you have, that's often where spiritual blessing can be found. We're created for Christ to be the center of our lives. And the good news of the gospel is that when we actually seek him, when he's actually what we're dependent upon, God provides spiritual blessings for us. I mean, that's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Sometimes money blocks us from actually being able to see those blessings. And so James wants to remind you, if you're in a place of poverty, that's not what defines you. If you're in a challenging economic situation, don't let that be what dictates what you have, the joy that you have, the access to God that you have. Actually, you can boast because it's often in those places that God works most mightily. Christians that find themselves in poverty should not despair as if somehow God is against them. I wouldn't look at that friend and say, well, you lost your job, that's because God doesn't love you. And it's not for us to stand in a place of judgment over them. No, oftentimes it's when we're in greatest places of need that God shows himself most powerfully in our lives. So James wants to remind his audience, you find yourself in a challenging place, you find yourself on the outside of society, you find yourself in low social and economic status, boast Because know that from that place, God is actually going to lift you up spiritually. And one day, he will do it physically in the resurrection as well. But if poverty doesn't define us, what's James' encouragement for the person that finds themselves in prosperity? Well, James has an encouragement for them to boast as well. Look at verse 10. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So notice in the text, James calls for boasting from both people. 
He calls for the lowly to boast in their exaltation, that in Christ they're exalted, that they have spiritual blessing. He calls the rich to boast, but not in their exaltation, actually that their finances provide a means of humiliation or humility for their life. Boast in his humiliation? What on earth does that mean? See, what James wants to remind them is that if you find yourself in a place of financial prosperity, the place you look to boast, the place you look to brag, the place you look to define your identity and purpose in life is not in your status or in your finances, it's in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you will look at your finances in such a way where you will see it as an opportunity to practice and display humility and dependence on Christ, not security and dependence on what you have. And so his encouragement is if you find yourself in prosperity, use that as an opportunity to boast, to brag about how money is not your object or your God. Jesus is. Why should we do this? James gives it to us because wealth is fleeting. When we put our identity in our possessions, in our material, in our status, in our wealth, those things are not eternal. Which is why in Christ, ultimately, prosperity is not what should define who we are and how we ultimately come to live. That's why James likens them in verse 10 to say the rich, the one in that prosperous situation, is like a flower of grass. They will pass away. Right? The sun is going to come. And just like grass glows and then the sun comes and burns it and all its beauty perishes, so that will be the case of the rich man. That ultimately, no matter how much you accumulate, no matter how much you have, no matter how much prosperity you gain in your life, there will come a point where you will step into eternity and you will not take any of that with you. John Stott famously noted that our life is a journey between two points of nakedness. We enter the world with nothing and we leave the world with nothing. And so if we make our life and if we boast in what we have about what we accumulate, then that's going to die. It's going to go away. So why would you boast in that? Don't see that as a source of success. See it as an opportunity to be humble. I think James is picking up just as much on the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the man who built bigger barns, who tried to accumulate more, to get more, to get more. And what happens? God calls for his soul. And he has nothing ready to step into eternity with. And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Do you see wealth as a trial? See, I think sometimes we have our thinking backwards. We think, oh, the more money I have, the better my spiritual life will be. The better my relationship with God would be. The more blessed I am by the Lord. But James actually says it's the opposite. He says it's actually when we're in the most physically dependent places that we see God the most. And oftentimes money can be a means not to grow in grace, not to grow spiritually with God, but can actually be a hindrance. And therefore, when we find ourselves in that place, we should be quick to seek humiliation, to be humble with what we have. You see, to boast in our humiliation 
is to value God's kingdom and our spiritual reality over and above our financial prosperity or social standing. It's to locate our finances in light of eternity, not the temporary. And it's to make our goal in life to know Christ, to be found in the Lord. I think James, again, is picking up the wisdom of the Old Testament here. In verses like Jeremiah 9.23, where it says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. When you talk about the successes of your life, do you boast that you know Jesus more because of what you've experienced? I mean, if we're not careful, I think we often boast in all the other things. What we've accomplished in our job, what we have or don't have, what we've experienced or don't experience. And yet, what Jeremiah reminds us and what I think James calls us back to is the first place of boasting. The first thing we should be excited about in our lives, whether we experience poverty or prosperity, is that we know Christ more. I mean, that's what Paul says. Right? I, there's nothing I want to gain, nothing I've gained, except to know Christ and to be found in him. That's the goal of life. That's what we're after. That's where our deepest joy is found. And so to boast in humiliation in places of financial prosperity is to say, I value God's kingdom and Christ over what I have, so much so that I'm willing to use my money as a way to display that it's not what I find my worth in. It's actually Jesus. And that's why I think to boast in our humiliation is to use our prosperity for the sake of others, to not see something as something that we hoard or collect or try to accumulate more so we can have more security, more status, more influence, but instead we utilize it for the sake of God's kingdom to display our value is not found in the material possessions of this world. It is found in Christ alone, which is why James says, if you're in that place, boast in the opportunity to practice Humility. I think one of the great examples of this, of a person who uh, exemplifies this kind of mindset, is R.G. Letourneau. It's probably not a name you're familiar with or heard much of, but R.G. Letourneau was one of the wealthiest men in the early stages of the 20th century. He originally uh, started out in uh, construction, but eventually realized um, that there was greater opportunity for him to, uh, to kind of move into uh, developing machinery for earth moving and building roads and building sorts of things. And so in the early 30s, he began to start a business where he built earth moving machines. And it was said that during World War II, I think it was like 70 or 80% of earth moving machines were used were coming out of Letourneau's business. He literally started a business and grew into be a multi-millionaire. Uh, that's back when millions actually mattered, right? So he'd be like on par with the billionaires of today. But the thing about RG Letourneau is that he had a deep commitment to Christ. He had come to faith as a young man, given his life to Jesus, got on fire, and, uh, and actually wanted to, uh, at one point, give up his business ventures and, uh, and become a pastor or a missionary, and he met with his um, pastor, and the pastor had great wisdom for Letourneau. He said, 
RG, God needs businessmen too. And that changed his life, and he saw his business as an opportunity to continue to advance and further God's kingdom. Laterno was so committed to Christ, he was committed in seasons both of prosperity and, um, and want. It actually is said that um, at one point when he was still running his construction business, he uh, had a business venture that fell through, and because of that, he found himself in debt up to $100,000. His creditors decided to give him grace, but they decided to send a financial advisor to help him straighten out his finances, and when the financial advisor met with him, he found out that Letourneau had made a commitment to give $5,000 to his church towards missions. And the story goes that the um, financial advisor said, you're not going to be able to fulfill that. And Letourneau said, no, I'm going to fulfill that first, and then I'll pay off the rest of my debt, which he actually then went on to do. And then his business blew up. He secured over 300 patents for earth-moving equipment and manufacturing processes and tools. But through all of that, Letourneau continued to be committed to Christ. The story goes that one day, him and his wife decided that they wanted to begin to move because of the wealth that they accumulated to living on what they called a reverse tithe. And Letourneau began to live in such a way where he gave away 90% of his income and only lived on 10%. You can actually find a whole lot of work that he's done in starting things for the sake of the kingdom of God, and yet many of us don't even know his name. One of his great quotes when he was asked about why he gave away so much of his wealth, he famously said, the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. You see, that's a person who sees their prosperity as an opportunity to display their dependence on God, not the things of the world. And so James is clear here, whether you find yourself in poverty or prosperity, that the values of God's kingdom are what dictate how we are called to respond to those places. The question I think we're forced to challenge, even at this point in the text, is what does mark our identity? And what does mark the way we think about our finances and the way we live in light of them? Too often in our lives, we mark those things by the values of the world. And these texts become challenging because we've set up in our mind that if we're in poverty, that means that God doesn't love me or isn't blessing me. And if I'm in financial prosperity, then he is. And that the goal is to live here and that there's nothing to be found here. And yet, what we remember in James, again, rooted in the teaching of Jesus, is that God's kingdom actually flips on its head the values of the world. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who taught in Luke chapter 6 when he gave one of his most famous sermons where he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, and blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their father did to the false prophets. James is only unpacking for us what Jesus is teaching, which is ultimately God's kingdom does not value what the world values. The world comes along and says, blessed are you if you're rich. Blessed are you if you're full. Blessed are you if you have more and more and more. This is who we prize, who we highlight, who we hold up as the the markers of success. And they look at those that are in poverty and they say, work harder, figure it out, do more. Jesus shows up and says, my kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is not about your temporary comfort and success. I have a kingdom that's eternal, that's where life flourishes, where life works in harmony and justice. And in that kingdom, spiritual blessing is what matters. Spiritual dependence on God is what matters. Being accepted by the world being praised for your financial status? Well, be careful of that. See, James is trying to get us to flip and to live. This is where mature faith finds itself. It aligns possessions rightly because it aligns with the values of the kingdom, not the values of the world. And this is where it gets challenging for us because if we're honest, we like when people speak well of us. And when we like and we get to embrace our prosperity, and we like to accumulate. But James wants to say, no, 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 no. The mature Christian, when they find themselves in poverty, they will say, no, God is my identity. Poverty doesn't decide me, and I have spiritual blessings in heavenly places for all of eternity. Praise be to God. And the wealthy Christian, when they find themselves in prosperity, will say, no, 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 no. Money does not define me. Christ defines me. I don't take worth in my money. In fact, I just see my money as a vehicle to be used to further and advance God's kingdom. But the call is the same, right? The call is the same. Find your identity in Christ, his kingdom. And then from that place, live his values and how you engage in the world. What does God value then of how we live in response to finding our identity in Christ? Well, I think James gives it to us in verse 27. Remember, James writes this opening section very circularly. I've talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's different than how we think, right? We like linear, A, then B, then C, then your conclusion. James is Jewish. He goes A, then B, then C, then back to A, then B, then C, And so in that, he's creating a whole picture, bringing nuance of what wisdom looks like, what mature faith looks like, that he's then going to continue to unpack in the rest of the letter. And so in many ways, 27 draws us back to this idea that we've unpacked, but it brings also the fuller wisdom that James has been unpacking all along. And what does he say? Many see this as the thesis statement of James, right? That religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So let's unpack this for a minute, right? Because I think what James reminds us here is that in Christ, not only we define by poverty, not defined by poverty or prosperity, but also that people 
are more valuable than possessions. Or maybe another way you want to remind yourself is that God's values become our values in how we actually live and practice our faith. So James says religion. The idea there is of religious practice, not simply like a system of religion. It's how you actually practice your faith and religious practice. So James says, religious practice that is pure and undefiled before God, that which God ultimately accepts includes these twofold kind of poles, so to speak. One side, it's to visit or care for orphans and widows in their affliction. James says, when we rightly value our finances, when we put our possessions in their proper place, one of the outworkings of that is we will seek to use our lives and our possessions to lift up and care for the most marginalized and oppressed of society. Remember, in James's world, it is a very family-centric, patriarchal society. It's how much of the Middle East still operates today. The family is centered. So to lose your family is to lose everything. There, there were no social systems to catch you in that day. If you were a wife who lost your spouse, your provider often in that place, you had nothing. If you were a child who lost your parents, you didn't have anything. There wasn't anything to fall back on. You were the most at risk, the most marginalized, the most at the bottom of society. And James says, if we have our hearts in Christ, in his kingdom, if we rightly value our possessions, one of the outworkings of that is we will use them to care for the least, to the most marginalized, the most oppressed. But on the other hand, he reminds us that we will also maintain holiness, or the way he says it, that we would keep oneself unstained from the world. That as we care for the least, as we step into the mess of the world, that we will continue to be a people committed to God's ways, committed to his values, his kingdom, what he has called us to. You see, James sees these poles in many ways as the outworking of true faith. And what James aligns with is the call of all of Scripture. Is this not what God calls us to? Is it not Jesus who said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep yourself unstained. Be holy as he is holy. Make him the center of your life. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't this the core of what we are called to live is it not God in the Old Testament who says, I don't care about your feasts, I don't care about your practices, but let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing tide. Isn't it God who shows up in Micah and says, what does, man, what does God require of you, O man, but to love justice, to lo or to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? All James is pointing us to in this present verse is the same thing Scripture calls God's people to consistently from beginning to end. Make Jesus and God your chief focus in life. Do what he has called you to do and live with radical love and compassion for those around you. That's what true religious practice looks like. But the problem is we're bad at maintaining the balance. Oftentimes when it comes to our own lives and communities of faith, we do not have that sort of balance. And I think if you only look at the church, I'll just put it in one simple location. Look at the church in the West in the 20th century and you see this. 
You see in the early part of the 20th century the rise of what was known as the social gospel. There was a great concern that began to take place in churches to say, we need to be the people who serve the least of these, who serve the lowest, who serve the most marginalized. And that was a great move because that's necessary and part of God's people. But in that movement then, there started to be compromise. Yeah, we're going to love the least of these, but when the world tells us this actually really isn't true, or that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, that's fine, just as long as we love people. Or when the world comes along and says, God's sexual ethic is archaic, you don't need to follow that. Many faith communities said, you're right, we need to love people. We're not going to continue to hold to what God's word says. And we saw a whole swath of the church that got wrapped up in thinking all that it means to follow Jesus is just loving people. And loving people is important. Don't hear me say that. But we also saw a whole swath of the church that moved into a place of, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, so we're going to be holy and righteous. We're going to sit in a place and look at those sinners. Look how terrible they are. But we've got it right, and we're going to pull into our holy huddle. And doesn't God love us more than he loves them? And man, we were holy, but we sure did not do a good job of loving the people at the bottom. And what James comes along and says, a true community of faith that's rooted in Christ, that's rooted in mature faith and wisdom, that puts its possessions in the right place, they're going to walk in that balance. They're going to have a radical commitment to the word of God, to his holiness, to his ways, to his kingdom, to his truth, regardless of what the world claims or says when it contradicts the word of God. But they're also going to be people who are found in the worst parts of society. They're going to be people who go in where the least are, who aren't afraid to step into the mess and bring hope in the midst of darkness. See, that's what a true community looks like. It maintains that balance. And what James wants to remind us is when our identity is rooted in Jesus, when it's not in our money, it's not in our financial status, whether high or low, then the way that will outwork in our life is we'll be a radical community of love for God and love for others. Because at the end of the day, isn't that what the king who we claim to follow did? I mean, you can't read through one of these gospels in your Bible and not see Jesus engaging the very lowest of his society. The most oppressed, the most ostracized, the people that the world had given up on. Jesus is the one eating dinner with, touching, healing, speaking God's word to the one that everyone else forgot Jesus actually comes to. He reminds us, I don't come for those who are well, I come for those who are sick. And when we look at our Savior, what we see time and again is someone who is willing to step in to the lives of the most marginalized and oppressed. And yet, he's the perfect example of holiness and sinlessness. He was without sin. He did the will of his father. And if that's our king, don't you think we should kind of look like him? Don't you think we should be the sort of people that are found in the worst parts, but who are so committed to loving God that we bring kingdom, light, and truth in those places and don't compromise on what God says? friends, the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus was our example, 
but that he actually made it possible for us to live this way. The reason we can live a pure and, as James says, undefiled religion or religious practice is because of what Christ has done for us. I mean, it was Christ that steps into our lowest moments. It's Christ who saw us when we were at the bottom of the eternal social scale. It was Christ who saw us in our abject spiritual poverty and said, I'm going to love those people enough that I'm going to come to die for their sins. I'm going to come to pay the price for their mistakes so that they can be lifted and exalted. And is it not Christ who then not only comes and dies for us that we might be exalted? Is it not him who three days later comes out of the tomb to say God's kingdom is here. There's an eternity present that you now have access through by faith and trust in me. And when you trust in me, guess what? You're going to get God's spirit. And as God's spirit comes, he's going to bring all of God's eternal blessings to you right now so you can begin to experience those things in light of what's ultimately going to come in eternity. Jesus didn't just leave us an example and say, go figure it out. No, he set us an example and then said, come put your faith in me. Mark your identity in me. Learn my ways. Trust in my death and resurrection. And as you do that, you'll become the sort of community and the sort of people who are marked by a holiness of God and a radical love and compassion for And my prayer for us this morning is that that's the sort of community we'd be. That whether you're in a season of poverty or whether you're in a season of prosperity, whether you're in a season of struggle and life feels like it's kicking you in the teeth, or whether you feel so comfortable you can't imagine changing a thing, that either place you would hear the call of James and says, I don't put my trust there. My trust is in Jesus. He's my identity. I follow him. And let God change our lives from there. Let me pray for us. Father God, how generous you are. God, we're so backward sometimes we don't even know what we need spiritually. We're so prone in our sinfulness to put our trust in so many lesser things than you. Temporary things, relationships, statuses, finances. And yet, God, out of that place, you loved us so much that you came to awaken us and provide for us what we need for eternity through your Son. And now, Lord, in Jesus, we have hope, not just for this life, not just for whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. We have hope for life eternal. That's amazing, Lord. But we confess this morning, I confess this morning, how easy it is for me to take my eyes off Christ, of my identity in him, of what he has provided for me, and to look to other things to look to myself 
for my identity, to look to the world to affirm me, to look to what I have to, for my security in life. God, how easy our hearts are to make idols of things so much less than you. And we hear the call of your word this morning. And so I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ, to once again find our identity and purpose in him, to let him move us to live the sort of life where we're free from whether we have a lot or a little. And instead we boast in Jesus. We're reminded that we are eternally wealthy because of him and that's what matters most. So even before, God, we go to live this out and put this into practice, would you just for a moment, as we prepare to worship, would you just for a moment, each one of us in this room, would you work to take and center our hearts right at the cross and on Jesus? Would you help us together to say, that's where my treasure is. That's where my identity is. That's where my purpose is in Jesus Christ, my Savior and and then let that overflow into how we live so that we might be a people of holiness and radical love and compassion. God, you can change our hearts right now in this moment, and I pray that you do. Work as we sing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.